0: a squadron lay at break of day with enemy in view each boat and tar had sailed afar a glorious deed to do at cannon's mouth
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to the fifth installment of the Energy of Empire series. In this episode, we'll turn our attention towards the Pacific side of the Spanish-American War, examining the invasion and conquest of the Philippines. In June of 1898, the US fleet departed Hawaii to engage the Spanish in Manila Bay. Just to note... On the way there, the USS Charleston detoured to take possession of the island of Guam. Situated 1,300 miles east of the Philippines, it was the ideal site for a coaling station and later airfield. Neither the Spanish nor the native inhabitants resisted this, and Guam became a US territory in a similar fashion to Puerto Rico. Due to the extreme brutality of the later Japanese occupation of the islands, a lot of the native people are highly supportive of the American presence there to this day. That presence is not without its problems, however. The US Army stole thousands and thousands of acres of land for its airfields, without ever paying any meaningful compensation. Moving on to the Philippines, then, this is where things get really dark for America's new imperial project. The Philippines had been ruled by Spain for over 300 years, with the collective name of the 7,000 islands coming from King Philippe. Long held aspirations of independence boiled over into open rebellion in 1896. Two years later, when the Spanish American War broke out, Theodore Roosevelt ordered the destruction of Spain's fleet in Manila Bay, and this was accomplished without the loss of a single American ship. The Americans then facilitated the return of exiled revolutionary leader Emilia Aguinaldo to the islands. They supplied him with 2,000 rifles to drive the Spanish out. Aguinaldo was under the impression his new friends were supportive of his liberation movement. This revolutionary movement quickly liberated much of the country from Spanish control, and Aguinaldo presented terms of surrender to the governor. He initially refused them, believing more troops would be sent to lift the siege. To this end, Spain did dispatch 16 warships, When they were diverted to Cuba, however, it became clear that the game was up. The Spanish parliament then blocked the governor from surrendering to Filipinos, as they found this too disgraceful an option to contemplate. A new governor contacted the American admiral, George Dewey, and proposed what became known as the Mock Battle of Manila. The Spanish and Americans would have a pretend fight, where the former would surrender to the latter. This is what happened although not everyone got the memo, and 55 people were killed. American forces took the city of Manila, and the Spanish later profited to the tune of $20 million for this arrangement. Much like in Cuba, the writing for the revolutionaries was on the wall when Emilio Aguinaldo was not invited to the surrender ceremony, and his fighters refused permission to parade through Manila. As far as the imperialists were concerned, they had served their purpose. On the other side of the Pacific Ocean a great debate was raging between imperialist and anti-imperialist factions. The justification that succored so many into support for the invasion of Cuba, to oust their barbarous oppressors, was just not applicable to the Philippines. The Spanish had already gone, and the Filipinos were hard at work drafting a constitution, forming a congress, and establishing the First Philippine Republic. Who were they to be liberated from? Themselves, it turns out. The argument was made that as the Filipinos were an uncivilised people, they would be unfit for self-government, as President William McKinley put it. He went on to say, There was nothing left for us to do but take them all, and educate the Filipinos, and uplift and civilise and Christianize them, and by God's grace do the very best we could by them, as our fellow men for whom Christ also died. It's probably worth noting that the vast majority of Filipinos were Catholic, and McKinley admitted to not being able to find the islands to within a thousand miles when dispatching the fleet there. There was also a concern that the islands would be taken by another imperial power. To be fair, it's not that either of these concerns were entirely without merit. It's simply not known how the Philippines would have progressed if left to their own devices. There had already been violence between independent factions, with Andreas Bonifacio, the father of the Philippine Revolution, having been assassinated by Emilio Aguinaldo's forces. The German Navy moved eight ships into Manila Bay right after the American victory. What their intentions were isn't entirely clear, but it's not likely they would have left the Filipinos completely alone to their own devices. It is not the case, then, that a total American withdrawal would have offered a guarantee of life, liberty and happiness for everyone in the Philippines. The question is, however... Could an American presence possibly improve matters? Many at the time contended so. William McKinley, for example, contended, No imperial designs lurk in the American mind. They are alien to American sentiment, thought, and purpose. Our priceless principles undergo no change under a tropical sun. They go with the flag. If we can benefit these remote peoples, who will object? Who will regret our perils and sacrifices? Who will not rejoice in our heroism and humanity? The Filipinos' children and children's children shall for all ages hence bless the American Republic because it emancipated and redeemed their fatherland and set them on the pathway of the world's best civilization. McKinley, if we take his words as being a true reflection of his thoughts, simply could not believe that Americans could be the bad guys. Others came to see things more cynically. Mark Twain, realising he'd been had, wrote, I left these shores of Vancouver a red-hot imperialist. I wanted the American Eagle to go screaming into the Pacific. It seemed tiresome and tame for it to contend itself with the Rockies. Why not spread its wings over the Philippines? I asked myself. And I thought it would be a real good thing to do. I said to myself, here are a people that have suffered for three centuries. We can make them as free as ourselves, give them a government and a country of their own, put a miniature of the American constitution afloat in the Pacific, start a brand new republic to take its place among the free nations of the world. It seemed to me a great task to which we had addressed ourselves. But I have thought some more since then, and I have read carefully the Treaty of Paris, and I have seen that we do not intend to free, but to subjugate the people of the Philippines. We have gone there to conquer, not redeem them. And so, I am an anti-imperialist. I am opposed to having the eagle put its talons on any other land. This period led to the formation of the Anti-Imperialist League, of which Twain was a member alongside industrialist Andrew Carnegie. I want to focus on the Philippines here, so I'll devote an episode to that movement next time, its failures and its successes, just to say for now that they believe they were in a battle for the soul of America. Was she a republic, or just another cynical European-type imperial power? As is often the case, the situation was influenced by a change in the facts on the ground. As a Senate vote over the future of the islands approached, Senator Henry Teller commented that, As soon as one American soldier fell in an attack from the natives of the Philippines, sentiment would vanish and the American people would stand behind their army as they had always done. This tried-and-true tactic of initiating war had been used to get hostilities with Mexico going during the 1840s. This time, American commanders ordered their soldiers to patrol aggressively, with the intention of sparking violence. When that violence inevitably came, 60 expendable Americans and 3,000 Filipinos died in the initial clash. The New York Times reported the clash as, "...an insane attack of these people upon their liberators." Combined with the usual corruption and backstabbing, it was enough to have the Senate ratify the Treaty of Paris and let the American occupation begin. Anti-Imperialist Karl Scherzer described the obvious flaw in the idea of an occupation for liberation. The people of those islands will either peacefully submit to our rule, or they will not. If they do not, and we must conquer them by force of arms, we shall at once have a war on our hands. Now, if they resist... What shall we do? Kill them? Let soldiers marching under the Stars and Stripes shoot them down? Shoot them down because they stand up for their independence? Open conflict broke out in February of 1899. Tens of thousands of American soldiers flooded into the country whilst a naval blockade prevented the Filipinos from acquiring weapons. They therefore employed guerrilla tactics of setting snares and booby traps and torturing prisoners. This rebuke of the imperialist pseudo-humanitarian efforts sparked the darkest aspect of the psyche, and violence spiraled into the massive destruction of villages and wholesale slaughter of civilians. Theodore Roosevelt's humanitarian impulse turned to, Resistance must be stamped out. The first and all-important work to be done is to establish the supremacy of our flag. We must put down armed resistance before we can accomplish anything else, and there shall be no parleying. No faltering in dealing with our foe.
2: There was a time, you know, I think it was in 1904 or 1905, where the United States has, it has to kill all the male population in a big island named Samar from 10 years old and above. Why? Because uh, they were outmaneuvered by the Filipino guerrillas. Guerrillas, and uh, many Americans were killed and so the US you know, uh, commander ordered the killing of all male uh, inhabitants of the island from 10 years old and above.
1: The brutality of the conflict became defined by the water cure. This could be said to be the origin of waterboarding, made famous 100 years later in Guantanamo Bay. It actually came from the Spanish Inquisition, via the Filipinos to the Americans. Water would be forced down a victim's throat, then interrogators would jump on his stomach until he talked or died. The futility of such a practice as a means of acquiring information was observed by Mark Twain at the time. He wrote of it, to make them confess to what? Truth or lies? How can one know which it is they are telling? For under endurable pain, a man confesses anything that is required of him, true or false, and his evidence is worthless. I will leave it to you to decide how realistic you find it that what was obvious to Mark Twain in 1901 was unknown to the CIA in 2001. When reports of such activities eventually did reach the United States, they did cause uproar in the press. The whole humanitarian justification for the war was now in shreds, The imperialists responded by having one of their own, Henry Cabot Lodge, chair the demanded inquiry. Lodge acknowledged isolated incidents of abuse, but concluded almost all such reports to be unfounded or grossly exaggerated. The parallels with later American wars in Vietnam and Iraq are astounding. Throw a few soldiers under the boss whilst giving the system a clean bill of health. The inability of imperialists to see evil within themselves is again astounding, with one prosecutor asking Filipino governor William Taft, when war is conducted by a superior race against those whom they consider inferior in the scale of civilization, is it not the experience of the world that the superior race will almost involuntarily practice inhumane conduct? With Taft responding, there is much greater danger in such a case than dealing with whites, there is no doubt of that. American cruelty, unlike the cruelty of all those other empires, was involuntary and really the fault of the Filipinos. The conflict raged for two years, until resistance leader Emilio Aguinaldo was captured in March of 1901. Convinced of the futility of further resistance, he swore allegiance to the United States and called for his compatriots to lay down their arms. This officially ended the war. However, resistance continued in parts for another ten years. In total, over 4,000 American soldiers were killed, around 16,000 guerrilla fighters and at least 20,000 civilians, and I've seen figures going into the hundreds of thousands, depending on how you count it, were also killed. To quote the journalist Stephen Kinzer, Filipinos remember those years as some of the bloodiest in their history. Americans quickly forgot that the war ever happened. With the islands pacified, the United States proceeded to rule the Philippines as a colony over the ensuing decades, with Filipinos progressively taking a larger role in governance. The Spanish had created a land-owning class whose interests now allied with the new colonizers. American reformers initially passed land acts with the stated intention of facilitating landless peasants owning their own farms. The actuality was a bit different. All lands not publicly owned were declared to be private, which meant hundreds of thousands of small farmers without official titles were designated as being squatters. They were then required to pay all sorts of costs, fees and taxes for the state to recognise ownership of their own land. The general movement over the colonial period was to exasperate inequalities in wealth and land ownership. The Philippines was transformed into an export economy, with the population working on large-scale sugar and tobacco plantations, whilst US corporations set up mining and logging operations. There were forces within the United States pushing for Filipino independence. Sugar and labour interests, for example, didn't like the extra competition. A date for independence was set at July 4th, 1945. Of course, the Japanese invaded and occupied the islands from 1942 through to 45. The Filipinos weren't particularly impressed by this, as the United States had essentially involved them in a war, then done nothing to defend the islands. The Japanese invasion was as brutal as the US one had been 40 years earlier, and on a much greater scale. An estimated 1 million Filipinos were killed, taking half a million Japanese soldiers with them. The United States then invaded and reoccupied the islands, and a pseudo-independence was granted on July 4, 1946.
2: So there was a period where the Philippines was a direct colony of uh, the United States. The United States also experimented something very uh, new in the Philippines, neocolonialism. Controlling a country, not by direct force, not by having Americans rule the country, but by training the elite in the country, training them, educating them, about you know how america wants and needs the philippines to be you know to support you know their imperial design around the globe and so that was happened that's what happened to the philippines beginning 1946 Uh, we were given so-called given our independence after the united states has controlled the economy the military and then uh, the foreign relations, the education, everything that is critical and is strategic for the country they control.
1: In addition to the Philippine army, the Japanese occupation had been resisted by around 180,000 guerrillas. Around 30,000 of these belonged to the Lap, the People's Army Against Japan, or Huk for short. As well as expelling the Japanese, Huk fighters sought land reform. In collaboration with the Filipino elite, American forces disarmed many Hook units whilst the war was still going on, branding them as a part of an international communist conspiracy. Incidentally, this is the same thing the British were doing in Greece at the same time. After the war concluded, the US trained and equipped 50,000 Filipino soldiers to maintain internal order. When Hook candidates were denied seats won in elections, a full-scale rebellion broke out. This rebellion provided cover for the government to drive villagers off their land in favour of the logging industry. Interestingly, General Douglas MacArthur, who liberated the Philippines from the Japanese, refused to lead a counterinsurgency against the Hook, believing their grievances to be entirely legitimate. Given that MacArthur was an anti-communist zealot, that says quite a lot. It was during this period in the Philippines that a lot of the counterinsurgency tactics later deployed in Vietnam and then across Central America would be developed. This included the use of false flag terror, where government soldiers would attack villagers whilst pretending to be hooks. Other psychological techniques developed by Lieutenant Colonel Edward Lansdale included playing on Filipino beliefs in vampires. They would abduct and kill a hook rebel, puncture his neck, and drain his blood then leave him out to be found. This would discourage the Hawks from operating in that area. Lansdale is an interesting character. I might do a bonus episode on him, as his morality and motivation reveal a lot about the nature of empire. Sticking with the Philippines for now, though, the US imposed a trade deal which granted parity rights to American corporations exploiting Filipino resources. They also acquired 99-year leases for 23 military bases, and forbade the Filipino military from acting independently or purchasing goods from any other country. The bases were instrumental in the coming wars in Korea and Vietnam. There has been some back and forth on this issue, with many bases closing in the 1990s, only to reopen during the Obama years. The CIA managed the country, funding their preferred political candidates whilst moving to discredit or even make plans to assassinate unacceptable ones. The country went through a democratic period until Ferdinand Marcos came to power in the mid-60s and used what the CIA believed to be a series of false flag bombings to declare a state of emergency and rule as dictator. The US supported the Filipino military through the Marcos years, thereby propping up his dictatorship. It was, however, an uneasy relationship, and when revolution came in 1986, they supported his overthrow, having lost faith in him to hold the country. Marcos was actually a convicted murderer prior to becoming president. During his time as dictator, he ran the Philippines as a fiefdom, enriching himself and his family to the tune of billions. I'm now going to play a clip from John Pilger's documentary, War by Other Means. It illustrates how imperial control becomes more subtle over time, switching from overt military occupations to enslavement through debt.
3: the world's
0: oldest human rights organization the anti-slavery society has declared debt a contemporary form of slavery nowhere is this more vividly demonstrated than here in the philippines where forty four percent of the national budget is given to paying interest charges to foreign banks compared with just three percent for health services moreover billions of dollars continue to leave this country just to meet the interest on money borrowed by the dictator Ferdinand Marcos in deals that were often secret and fraudulent. There is perhaps no greater example of the burden of debt than one notorious project in the Philippines. It sits on Bataan Peninsula and is potentially as dangerous as Chernobyl. Built less than 60 miles from the city of Manila on three earthquake faults near two live volcanoes, one of which recently erupted this is the Bataan Nuclear Power Station. In the Philippines, it's known as the Big Scam. The scam almost certainly began here, at the Wack Wack Golf Club in Manila, where Ferdinand Marcos used to play with his cousin and chief crony, Herminio Dacini. In 1974, the American company General Electric applied to build the Bataan Nuclear Power Station. But Dacini urged his pal Marcos to accept the highest bidder, the Westinghouse Company. Moreover, the deal would be underwritten by the American government through the Export-Import Bank and a clutch of private American banks. Everybody would make a buck, except the Filipino people. By 1977, President Carter had stopped the building of nuclear power plants because of their inefficiency and faulty design. But he did nothing to stop the same plants being built in third-world countries like the Philippines. Moreover, the State Department, which had to approve Westinghouse's export license, knew the Bataan power station was to be built in an earthquake zone, but still it was
3: encouraged to go ahead. To make the story even more uh, dubious, the U.S. government enters in. William Casey, later the director of the CIA, then head of the Export-Import Bank, an agency which helps U.S. businesses overseas by providing loans and loan guarantees. Casey goes to Manila. Casey comes back, recommends that the U.S. government, through this Export-Import Bank, give an initial loan. That opens the gate for all these other banks to come in and give loans. And they start building. Westinghouse at this time does the usual thing. You have delays, you have problems. The price goes up and up and up. First to 1.1 billion, finally to 2.2 billion. Some estimate that the final cost of the Philippines will be 2.6 billion dollars. So you have a 2.6 billion dollar fiasco that will never produce one watt of electricity, which now the Filipino people have to repay. When Marcos was
0: overthrown in 1986, President Aquino declared the Bataan power station unsafe, and it was closed forever. At the same time, her government began legal action in the United States against Westinghouse. Last year, the American judge found ample evidence of bribery. On the day before the case was due to be heard in March, it was settled out of court. Westinghouse agreed to pay the Philippines $100 million. But remarkably, the Aquino government agreed to give Westinghouse 400 million dollars just to make the power station work regardless of its position in an earthquake zone and this 400 million dollars will be borrowed from the same American export-import bank and will have to be repaid by the Filipino people most of whom live in poverty
2: finally may I turn to that other slavery Our $26 billion foreign debt. I have said that we shall honor it. Yet half our export earnings, $2 billion out of $4 billion, which is all we can earn in the restrictive markets of the world, must go to pay just the interest on a debt whose benefit the Filipino people never received.
0: when Cory Aquino was swept to power she described the Philippines as a land of broken promises her promise to the Filipino people was that they would be the beneficiaries of their civilized uprising against Marcos I will vigorously renegotiate she said the terms of our foreign debt but in the end she gave priority to paying off the banks poverty now stands at seventy percent of the population A rise of more than 10% since she came to power.
1: One of the effects of this impoverishment is that the Filipino people have to travel overseas to find work. This was something Marcos established to get young people, who might otherwise rebel, out of the country. It's not an exaggeration to say that this debt burden creates a kind of modern slave trade, with a pool of low-cost workers. I'll play us out with a clip from Abby Martin's documentary, Buying a Slave, the hidden world of U.S.-Philippines trafficking.
4: So in 2007, um, we met our first trafficking survivor. She was the domestic worker for um, the Philippine ambassador to the U.N. She worked as a nurse you know, in the Philippines, and she was promised that she would be able to work as a nurse when she comes here. Um, so she was asked to sign you know, a, a contract, basically, that she would pay five thousand dollars you know um and she would be able to come here and work and then when she came here, she didn't know that she would work you know as uh that she would come here as a um a domestic worker for the diplomat, so she ended up um uh she ended up cleaning you know three floors a house with three floors she was serving the diplomat, his family, including the grandchildren. Um, Her passport was taken. She was not allowed to leave the house. The house was locked from the inside. She had no phone. She had no contact with her family, you know, to the point that she was suicidal. You know, um, we met her because uh, I think it, you know, the landline, you know, um, you know, they wouldn't even give her access to the landline, right? And so one time, you know, it rang, she picked it up, there was a Filipina on the other line, and she said, you know, help me, help me, right? So she ended up, you know, and the other woman ended up uh, knowing the Mayan. So that's how she was um, connected to us. The Maya, like I, like what I said, we've been doing this work since 2007 and until recently, most of the cases that we're handling are domestic workers of diplomats. We've handled, you know, cases, you know, from diplomats, you know, from Japan, from Peru, from uh, Germany. You know, I mean, the UN is just right here. It's like buying a slave, you know, for them. You would think these people, you know, with their, you know, like degrees and their titles, would treat another human being, you know, with, with dignity and respect, right? You know, they're supposed to be, you know, human rights defenders, but they're, they're the very ones, you know, who are abusing these workers, who are taking care of their homes and their children and them. You know, it's, it's, it's um, mind-boggling.
1: Thank you for listening. In this episode, I've drawn on Stephen Kinzer's books Overthrow and The True Flag and William Bloom's Killing Hope. I've also used clips from John Pilger's documentary, War by Other Means, and Abby Martin's two documentaries, Buying a Slave, and The Roots of the Philippines' Trafficking Epidemic. Next time, we'll take a look at the force that opposed all this conquest, the Anti-Imperialist League.